You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, listeners. Today is something different, so be excited. Um, this is the first episode of an anonymous podcast series that I'm doing. So in the past podcast episodes, we explored the career journey of many different professionals. But today, we're going to be actually looking a little deeper at what someone actually does in their role in a particular field. And also just on the kind of industry dynamics of that career career area. Uh, the field we'll be exploring today is venture capital investing in Canada. To allow for candidates of conversation, uh, I've made the guest identity anonymous. And I've also changed up the person's voice and given them a gender neutral name. And I really do hope that the voice alteration doesn't distract you too heavily. Uh, I try to make it as enough to cover up the interviewee's voice to protect their identity, but also to allow you to actually get the message across and understand what they're saying. Um, Some of you may be wondering how you would know to trust this person or not. if they're not really revealing their identity. And for that, I guess, you know, I would be your filter and you'll have to trust me to bring in guests who I feel can deliver a level of candidness and knowledge to that particular field. But, and, you know, just rest assured that I am doing my best in that realm. Uh, I'll be doing a series of these episodes to just really test it out and because this was an idea I had a while back and, you know, so it would be great if I can get feedback from you, my valued listener, as you know, if you enjoy this kind of different style and you want more of it, then please shoot me a note in the reach out tab on my site, oldmandan.com. It's oldmandan.com. And so, yeah, I hope you really enjoy this episode. And before I, I let you go, quick reminder if you're a fan of the podcast and you're finding value in it please help out by leaving a positive review on itunes so more people can find it also if you'd like to learn more about um anything in life i publish a weekly newsletter called this week i learned where i fill you in on seven daily learnings i learned on being healthy wealthy and wise just from the week the newsletter also includes uh the link to the new podcast episode and my new weekly article that I publish. And so if you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, you can also find that at oldmandan.com. There's subscribe buttons everywhere. And so, yeah, thanks a lot. And without further ado, here's my interview uh, with a venture capital investor in Canada. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we're going to try something really different. Um, this is an idea I've been ruminating for, over for a while, as, since like Christmas break. And I had the idea of having something called the Anonymous Cast, or uh, Anonymous Podcast for the long form, where I interview professionals in various industries, and we try to have as candid a conversation as I can. And we try to be candid, and also protect the person's identity. Um, just so the individual can freely speak their mind. And so with that purpose, today I have a professional in the venture capital space in Canada and to help the person keep, you know, their identity secret. I'm going to call the person Min. 
we call them men because it's a gender neutral name for someone of Korean heritage. You, you could be men and not Korean, that's fine too, but that's why I picked it so I could hide the gender of the individual as well. And so this is something new. Um, I've never done it before and I've ne- this guest has never done it either. And so we might stumble and fall, but bear with us as we try to get some candid conversations to you about the venture capital field here in Canada. So, hey, man, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Does this mean I have to use gender neutral pronouns the whole time? Am I, oh. a, am I a they or a them for the rest of this? Is that... Oh shit! I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'm. I'm just gonna call you men nonstop, and um, I guess. I guess you, for you, when you refer to me, you can just call me by my name. Like everyone knows who I am. Right. Um, when you refer to certain people, I guess you. Could, I don't know. You could use gender uh, neutral, but I guess it doesn't really matter. You um, know, you wouldn't believe. I was registering for an event recently, yeah. and they said, "What is your preferred pronoun?" Oh wow! He, she, or they, and. This is a question now, instead of asking, you know, gender or asking, I don't know, what type of sandwich or dietary restrictions you have. Yeah, yeah. They ask you, what is your preferred pronoun? Oh, wow. Before you come to this event. Anyway. Is this a Canadian uh, tech event? Is it that is what a it Canadian is? tech event. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They've got to be real, really inclusive about that these days, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm actually thinking of having someone in that kind of community come on um, as a guest, so... Stay tuned. I hope to have that kind of discussion too. I'm, I'm very curious to have it. Like it's something I want to learn more about for sure. Oh, definitely. Um, so the first question I want to ask you is how would you, like you personally describe what you do as a VC investor, VC standing for venture capital? Yeah, I mean, I guess the easiest way to describe it is maybe walk through kind of like a, a typical week or a typical month. I, I'd say... Our time is kind of split into three main buckets. So bucket one is, for me at least, is sourcing. So finding new companies. And that's a mix of companies that reach out to us and then us going out and reaching out to companies, whether it's at incubators, at startup events, at pitch competitions. So a lot of the time we're going to universities and we're, we're finding people in, in research and seeing if they're interested in spitting out their research into an actual company. Another third of our time is spent on portfolio company monitoring. So I say that's companies that have already been invested in and making sure that they have everything they need to be successful. So a lot of the time for us that involves helping on the finance side. So whether that's with fundraising or helping them, you know, keep their, you know, their budget and their projections in order. Mm. But often it's even things like making introductions, doing sales, helping them, you know, helping them even with hiring and, and growth challenges a company going from 10 people to 50 people has a lot of challenges that another company that's going from you know 100 people to 200 might not have and then the the last third of the time for for our fund at least is is spent with investors and fundraising some of that time ends up being into sort of admin work so things like reporting to the investors and and putting together um yeah just a Sometimes it's even just audit work and things like compliance reports and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I'd say that's sort of the three major buckets. Uh, another piece of that first bucket with deal sourcing is is eventually deal execution. So, you know, if we meet, call it 50 to 100 companies in a month, of those, we might move into diligence with one or two or three. And then of those three, we might invest in sort of zero to one, right? And... In a year for our fund, a typical number of investments would be four to five. 
So that, that gives you sort of a general sense of you know, what we look at and how many companies there are in Toronto. It's a, yeah, it, it's a busy, busy space. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say 50 to 100 in a month. That's a lot of companies. Yeah, I mean, typically, not, yeah, you know, call it closer to 50. The 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 times when we get to 100 is, is things like where we go to a university and we meet a bunch of companies that they're not really companies yet necessarily, right? And so you might see 10 in a day, but they're not. So, uh, so that's that's inclusive of, of like a couple of, a couple of guys with a website and saying we're a company now, right? Exactly. That's including some uh, early early stage angel type investments right. that, yeah, they're they're not potential candidates for the fund. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's how I feel when people ask me. So, what do you do now, Dan? And I <laughs> and I go, well. I'm I'm doing things, but I don't really know if it's a company. I I, I can't really say. <laughs> I want to call myself a company, but I don't I don't know. You're a business man. Thank yeah, you, thank yeah, you, thank you. That that's businessman. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess like you know when, like it it reminds me of a time when I I was talking to one of the other venture capital folks. It was just at a big startup event, <laughs> and uh, one dude came up to this VC and said. Um, how can I get funding? And I was wondering, ooh, what, what kind of company is he going to pitch? And he, and he said, I have an idea. How can I get some funding? And the VC was very, very nice. And instead of saying, what the hell are you saying? She was saying, oh, well, you kind of need a team and you kind of need a website and you kind of need <laughs> some form of a business, a business to pitch to us. We we kind of look at companies with about you know 10 million in revenue. And so the guy, and the guy goes, yeah, but how can I start a company without money? And I was like, oh, God, man. Just, this guy. Just, do, Look, do you see a lot of that? So this is a common <laughs> challenge that comes up. People, look, if you have an idea and you don't know how to build that into a business, there are a ton of great resources in Toronto especially, but even just at universities and other incubators and use the Internet to your advantage to, to find out, all right, are there people that can help me launch this idea or turn this idea into something even slightly tangible so that it could eventually maybe grow into a business, all right? But don't go to a venture capitalist and ask for investment in your idea before it's anything at all, you know? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, right? It, uh, anyway. Yeah, to, to your point, this this does come up a lot. And yeah, people, you know, they'll give you their elevator pitch of, uh, you know, I have this great idea. All I need is a million dollars and I can make it a real thing, right? And it's like, okay, sure. If if you really have a good idea here, you can you can get it to somewhere before you get a million dollars to build it, in my opinion. But also the types of businesses we look at aren't, aren't necessarily the moonshot deals. We're not looking for the give me a thousand X return on my investment. We're looking for three to five X type returns in a reasonable amount of time. So we're not trying to spray and pray into every possible company or idea that's out there. And we don't want to see a lot of zeros to be honest. And that's different from, I guess the typical venture capital style fund that you'd see in the U S but in Canada, it's more prominent to see these, these funds that almost operate like private equity where they want to see three to five X and they don't want to have any zeros. So yeah, it's a, I don't know if I, to, to answer your question about that guy who has an idea that he wants to, you know, get a million dollars and build. It's like, you know what, you might have better shot actually doing that in SF where there's a bunch of VC funds and they don't know how to invest in anything or they, they have too much capital and they, they need to deploy it all 
right? I hope I'm not <laughs> talking about anybody out there. Right? Like, uh, this, the New York Times had an article on uh, why venture capital is broken. Um, here, I'm trying to look it up right now. Is broken. And they list out a few funds that are, are taking this model of, hey, getting reasonable returns on your whole portfolio of assets and not trying to find the next Facebook because there's a lot less likelihood that you're going to return any capital to your investors when you're just out there looking for Facebook. What does that even mean, right? And uh, the, the the funds that they list and the strategy that they're describing, it's like, yeah, this is what most Canadian VCs have already been doing for 10 years. So maybe we're actually ahead of the game, uh, not behind, but I don't know, that's yet to be seen. Uh, in general, people say that the Canadian VC space is still emerging and we are sort of where... The U.S. was, call it more than 10 years ago in terms of uh, maturity and, and venture capital. But, um, I don't know, it's, it's a great space to be in. We continue to grow. I, uh, I have my opinions on it, as you can, as yeah, you can yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, I think maybe maybe it's the case that we are where the U.S. was 10 years ago and the U.S. just has a lot more exuberance than, and euphoria than we do. It, you know, right. Their banks collapsed, ours didn't. Exactly. Hey. <laughs> You said it, not, you said it, not me. <laughs> oh, don't worry, I'll, t- I'll take all the blame, I, I don't mind. Um, and so, like, what what other uh, big differences do you, do you see in the VC landscape between Canadians and the U.S., just from your experience? Right off the top, it's valuations. I mean, you know, guys who are raising in the U.S., I mean, you meet a lot of guys who have companies in Waterloo, for example, that yeah. think, oh, yeah, I can raise an SF, and they come back from SF, and they've got huge goals they're thinking oh yeah my company's already worth 15 million it's worth 20 million it's worth 50 million yeah there's a, i remember reading about how guy guys or sorry, not even guys but guys and gals you know gender neutral um so right, teams right. business businesses in who come out of y combinator they have this belief that if you add an engineer it adds a million or 10 million dollars share valuation so you go i just added two engineers so now my company's worth two million dollars 20 million dollars more right and when i heard that i was thinking that that's insane Makes no sense at all because I can hire an engineer for a hundred grand in in a year, right? It's not uh, it's not a million dollar, ten million dollar value add. Fine, you know, fight me on it, right? But uh, yeah, I I don't know where they they get their valuations in the U.S. and trying to raise money on those valuations in Canada is is very difficult. Um, you know, typically we'd see in a Series A if somebody's trying to raise five million dollars, you you sort of set your pre-money around 12 to 15, right? Like that's what you're going to see in a typical Canadian Series A deal. Um, in the U.S., you can add zeros to those numbers. You know, like people are raising crazy amounts of money at crazy valuations. It doesn't make any sense if you ask me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, but every time I hear about it, I, I think I get more surprised as I also speak to Canadian VCs and it seems that, you know, Obviously, there's a bit of Canadian bias, but that we're kind of more toned down. Um, some, I think, fault us and talk negatively about how uh, they're not very risk-taking enough. So it's very frustrating as a company to get a Canadian VC. So what, why do you, do you see some kind of tendencies where of companies that prefer Canadian VCs? Like, are they companies that you know want a VC that is more risk-mitigating? Or is it mainly like they want Canadian VCs after they failed at an SF? Huh. That's a that's an interesting question. I think yeah, it's fair to say there are some founders who think 
oh yeah, I, it, like if I can't raise in SF, then I'll come back and try to raise in Canada, right? And I don't know. I think that's just sort of um, it's naive in many ways. It's like, look, we're here, we're close to you, we know the landscape where you're growing. We're the right partners for you. Um, and I wouldn't say we're, we're risk mitigating in many ways. It's just pragmatic. It's practical. This is, is a great way to take advantage of, you know, it's a lower dollar. You have your people working here. They're extremely skilled and very talented. You can still sell your product in the U.S. And immediately you're seeing a 30% higher return on your, or a 30% higher margin just from the FX. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Uh, USVCs are great too, and we have brought USVCs into Series B rounds and later stage rounds because we don't have many larger Series B and onward investors in Canada. So it makes sense, I think, at a certain point to bring in USVCs, especially when you're trying to scale over there. But at the earlier stages where you need the support, like I said, on the ground level with things like just doing your projections and your budgets, with hiring, with sales, you want somebody who's going to be there with you. Want somebody who's 20 minutes away and that's the real advantage of working with canadian vcs i think is is we understand how to help you get your shred we understand like just basic things that are part of working in canada or being a business in canada yeah and have you have you experienced difficulty in finding companies do you feel that um there is a quality or kind of you know opportunity there's a ton of deal flow. That's not necessarily yeah. an issue, but quality is uh, is where deals get competitive. So even within like the VC space, we all we meet up. We you know we we have sort of networking events where all the VCs kind of get together, and everyone's friends, right? And and to be honest, on most deals, we we do try to work together. We, we syndicate deals. We there's no sort of fighting. You know, this is my deal. This VC can't have it. Um, there might be some situations where one firm wants to lead over another or they want, you know, more involvement on a board, for example. But I think in general, people are open to co-leading and they're open to having a board seat each as long as the money is around the same that's coming in. Right. But, uh, yeah, it can get competitive when, I don't know, let's say a company is trying to raise money in the U S and they have lofty goals and the valuation set very high and then they you know as a canadian vc you still want to be a part of this deal because it's a great canadian company that's growing super fast but unfortunately unless you want to match whatever the u.s guys are offering it's hard to convince a founder that hey you know what we're, we're bringing a lot more to you and we're going to be here for you more than those guys will it can get competitive yeah yeah have you, have you experienced that yourself I wouldn't say we've lost any deals like that. Um, yeah. Generally, we are valuation sensitive, so we would just pass. pass yeah. yeah, but yeah, there's probably a couple that we wanted to be a part of that, you know. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> and, and so, when, when you look at these founders or these companies, is there kind of a a cheat sheet, like a checklist that you look through and go, "Is there?" You know, you know how you, you yeah. hear about some VCs who go, "All right, I need the kind of Mark Zuckerberg." type founder you know is he from harvard did he drop out does he look like a coder you know that that, that what kind of do you, have, do you have your own kind of a checklist a funny one i heard recently that i actually kind of liked was yeah. a hustler hipster hacker so the the the, the, 
the exec team has to have a, a hustler. So in my head, there's usually the sales guy, probably the CEO. He's the one out there like getting deals done, fundraising. You got to have a hipster. And that's sort of the, I don't even know how to describe that, but I mean, I can think of a few examples of guys in our portfolio that like fit it well, but he's yeah, the, like maybe like flannel shirt and right. practically like a lumberjack. He's or, the one who's recommending hot cortados or sorry, flat cortados yeah, at, the, yeah. so at the Starbucks. Like the kind yeah. of um, urban outfitter shopper, you know, you, you pay up to look poor, but you're not. <laughs> exactly. And then the, uh, the hacker, he's the guy who's uh, sitting there quietly just getting the coding done. Yeah. And, uh, Socially awkward introvert. Exactly. Socially <laughs> awkward introvert. Perfect. Um, and I think that actually fits really well for what I'd say is a successful exec team at any startup. Yeah. Is is that the rule of three thing then? Do you do you need a founding team of three? Like, you know, your personal bias, do you feel like you have something like that? I've seen a lot of successful rule of three founding teams, right? So I'll leave it at that. But I... I I wouldn't say no to a company just because they didn't have three. Um, since we invest early stage, I think there's definitely opportunity to hire the talent that you're missing. And if founders are open and and willing to accept that, hey, there's a talent gap on their exec team, and they're willing to sort of basically provide the equity necessary to, to fill that gap, then yeah, that's great. Like the, the company can still be successful. You know, it, it's not like three guys have to start every business for it to be a winner, right? But uh, yeah, I, I do like seeing those three in the exec teams. I think that type of management style works really well. Mm. And in terms of like due diligence, when I find you know a lot of Canadian Canadian VCs, I think prominently early stage, um, maybe you know as Roman market matures, we'll see more later stage guys as I think VCs tend to evolve too with their own portfolio companies naturally. Um, and that'd be great to see. But I find that it's, it's just, it just seems so challenging to do much due diligence. Like what, what numbers are you looking at? Like the most companies might not even have any revenue. They definitely probably don't even have any profit. Um, it's not like when I was at, you know, public equity investor, I got all the information I want. It's rather more 80% mm -hmm. of this information is garbage. I just got to focus on the 20%. And that alone is tough, but for you guys, what information are you doing? Like, what what's what's due diligence like at, right. in venture capital? There's a lot of reading between the lines, right? So, I mean, first thing we do when we meet a company is we try to understand the market they're in, whether so both from sort of market sizing standpoint and then also competitive landscape. And that we, you know, we don't necessarily need anything from the company in particular to sort of build that up, but it's it's useful to also get a sense of all right, where do they think they are in this? And then what does our analysis say and compare that? From the companies themselves, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as asking for just like corporate records. Like, are you incorporated? Or is all of your IP assigned to the company? Do the executives have employment agreements with the company? Like, what are your options look like? And what are your invest or sorry, investing agreements look like? Right? Well, for your employees, have all of your employees signed that, the IP that they generate at the company belongs to the company. You'd be surprised how many people come in sort of as consultants and it's not clear that whatever they've coded or what they've worked on belongs to the company. So some of that basic legal stuff is part of our diligence. We've got to get that out of the way. No, I think, I think that's, um, I think more, comp I, I would actually 
bet that most companies don't really know how to do that stuff without actually having a VC even tell them, hey, have you even thought about this? Because right. I also had a friend who was at a public company. It was a public company, small cap public company. And they didn't have any NDAs for their IP, for their tech. And when my friend left that firm, another uh, technical dude stole the IP wow. and created a competitor in what was practically close to a monopoly market. And the company tried suing, but they couldn't because they had no, no legal processes. And so, yeah, they just lost a chunk of, com- of a customers to that new competitor. That's exactly the concern. Right? Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, it, as soon as we invest in this and somebody knows that it's worth something now, well, if the advantage was maybe first mover, if the advantage was there isn't a, a ton of competition locally, well, guess what? You could lose that advantage in a heartbeat if you didn't have some basic legals checked off. And then on top of that, we, we, we always try to look for some traction, um, you know, looking at customers and contracts, trying to understand sort of the sales pipeline, how long do things take. Um, we do a little bit of shadowing on some sales. We will do customer calls. We'll do yeah, a couple other things like that. I mean, there's tech due diligence as well. Uh, sometimes we might involve a partner if necessary. Um, for for deals that involve sort of IP, we'll have IP lawyers come and take a look at things. We'll have sort of experts. We have a bench of, of people that we can go to to give us feedback on various different industries. And, yeah, I mean, all of that kind of gets put together into a nice written, prim polished uh, diligence memo and uh, like it's shared with the investment committee. And, you know, usually if that much work has gone into it, then we already know that there's going to be a deal. Um, we are a little interesting in that we'll have a term sheet in place before we get very deep into diligence. Um, those first few things I mentioned, like market size and competition, understanding where the company thinks they are, we'll use that to sort of set the initial terms of the deal. And then based on sort of whether we think we have an agreement, we'll then start going forward into much deeper diligence and then also start the process on the legals. Mm. And so, so do you ever have a time when you actually invest without doing any due diligence? You just, you just met the founders and you go, this trio, love it. They, no, 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 no. I mean, at the end of the day, we're still sort of stewards of capital, right? Uh-huh. Like, it's not our money that we're investing. It's, it's someone else's. So we want to make sure that we're extremely careful. I mean, our, our LP basis is pretty nice and that we don't have to worry too much about, uh, you know, very strenuous investment committee meetings and things like that. But still, um, we prefer to be good stewards of the capital that we're, we're working with. I mean, one thing that's interesting, I think like any other asset manager is this idea of, of, of being able to sort of, I mean, money is a, is a conduit for resources in some way. Right. And, and being able to allocate and, and give purpose to those resources is important. So, we might have a certain industry focus or a certain idea that we really want to get behind and we want to push. And so we might find a company that fits really well into that thesis. And then maybe that bias influences our diligence and it might feel like it's a little bit lighter, but it wouldn't necessarily wipe out the diligence altogether, mm. you know? Um, yeah. And I think that's true. Any bias that does influence our diligence is, probably a good thing um if if we come in with a strong feeling about an industry or a company or an idea well all the more reason we want to invest i I don't think then that 
you know, some issues with contracts and things like that is really going to stop us from making an investment because at the end of the day, we can, we can always just amend all those contracts and we can get everything signed and fine. It might take an extra month before closing because we have to get everything signed, but so what, right? Um, I think that's fair. Yeah. How, how long does a due diligence process usually take? Yeah, it's funny. We give ourselves more time than we need. Um, we've closed in as fast as like a couple of weeks, but generally we'll spend a couple of months and something that's a lot more complex. Uh, we'll spend upwards of, I've, I've spent four months on, on diligence on the company oh. and that was like pretty actively for those whole four months. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of diligence compared to other deals where it's just a little bit more obvious, uh, lower valuation, lower check size, less going on, less, less risk. It's not really worth spending four months of diligence on. So we'll get it done in two weeks. Yeah. That risk reward trade off even with time too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so, but hour wise, how many hours are you spending? It's not like investment banking no, or private equity. Like, you know. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, in general, call 40 to 50 hours a week. I mean, nice. I'm not spending too much more than that. I mean, if there is a busy week, like if we're closing a deal or something like that, I might, and that's just cause I, I want to, I'll be working more. Right. But, um, yeah, generally it's within 50 hours. A week. Yeah. Is that standard? Do you think? I, I think that yeah. is standard across. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you start including travel time and things like that, it might get a little higher, but it's, yeah, we don't travel too far. We like to invest locally. So, yeah, I find a lot of Canadian VCs aren't like that. Um, yeah, why why go to someone else's yard when you have your exactly? You know, you have a nice yard here. Um, how does how does a fee structure work in venture capital? Is it like two twenty? Our fund is two twenty. Okay, yeah. would you say most are like two twenty? Actually, I don't know. I I would assume that we're not different because yeah, if I, we were different, we'd probably get a lot more pushback from yeah. the LPs. But I think most tend to be two twenty, just from my um, conversations with others as well. But yeah, I was just wondering if um, if VCs are going to change that or if that anything's going to happen. But I doubt it. I mean, <laughs> I guess in the is, is it true that in the public equities markets that's that's already changed? People um, are. I think well, it hasn't already changed, but I think some are changing. Um, I think uh, it it really depends. I know at least for the mutual fund folks, they're definitely thinking of lowering it for sure. Um, it they gets, have to. It gets tough, yeah, mm-hmm. when you're only charging a management fee and there's no performance metric to it. Um, and I know a very unpopular option is to have no management fee and just purely performance, although I think that's the best way. I think that's alignment with shareholders totally. But um, <laughs> I don't know about that. I, uh, <laughs> well, I, know. I can't say I agree. I mean, <laughs> something needs to fund the day-to-day operations of uh, any business. Yeah, and I think that's why, like, uh, for example, there's famous investors like Monish Babrai or Guy Spear who charge no management fee, and they mm-hmm. do purely performance just because they love investing in a lot of the capital is their own. Right. Uh, and they're single people, like one-man teams. And so right. that's I think that's how they keep the operation lean. Um, and I obviously have my opinion about how I think investment teams shouldn't be teams, but individuals, at least for public equity. That's my opinion. Okay. Um, but that can... We can do that like another podcast or something. Okay. Tell us more about you and <laughs> venture capital. Enough, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so right now in terms of, I guess, the investments that you've seen, the ones that have actually like succeed, succeeded in terms of you've exited it, um, whether mm-hmm. they were acquired or, you know, 
I guess acquisitions for the most common right. form. Yeah. Um, you don't see a lot of uh, IPOs in Canada. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, um, what's been the most surprising? Like, was it? Do you find that the exits that you see happen, the ones that are successful, um, that actually, do they actually meet up with the original thesis that you forecasted out, thinking this this team, this company is gonna make it. They're gonna get a big acquisition. I can I can tell that's the original thesis, and it actually happens out, or is it a usually like a big surprise? And you go, I had no idea. So that's a good question. Um, I would say with every deal we go into, we're expecting a good size exit at the end. Where we were, we're not going to make an investment in a company where we think, oh, well, this one's going to fizzle out and fail, right? So yes, that part stays the same. But I think the, the type of company that we end up exiting to can be a surprise. And there's some cases where the the buyer is 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 not buying like a strategic for their customers or for their talent. Instead, they actually like the, the platform or they like the product or they like the, the data that's being generated. And you go, oh, that wasn't the thesis at the beginning. We didn't think we were going to sell it on, oh, the data is going to be super valuable and someone's going to want that. We thought, oh, yeah, these guys are going to make some noise in the industry and they're going to have some customers coming to them and, you know, they're going to threaten some larger player or, or maybe not threatened, but a larger player might look at them and think, oh, yeah, you know what? This this fits our growth strategy. This is a great M&A target for us. So sometimes the, the party that ends up buying is is a surprise. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, we we go in thinking, oh, you yeah, know, this one's going to return 1x and, uh, and then it ends up being 5 and we're super excited. No, it's, you know, we're, we're in there expecting sort of 5x returns in every company, which three to five X in every company, which again, like in, um, I think in most VCs, that's not even what they're, that's not what they say they're looking for, right? That most VCs are out here, at least in the U S they're, they're saying that, you know, they're, they're going for unicorns and it's like, all right, no, we're not looking for unicorns. So if, uh, if we ever were to get a unicorn, we'd be extremely pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good, and do you, do you find that um, af- at least so after let's say a year or two of actually having the company that you can kind of make a decision on? Yeah, I don't know if these guys or this team has what it takes. That's do you, do you see do you see question. signs? Or? That is a very tough question. I'll say there have been hard decisions that need to be made in terms of um, growing teams or augmenting teams, um, pivoting companies. We don't give up on our uh, portfolio so as a result of that you know there's often some tough decisions that need to be made at the board level and often like often it's good for everybody involved i mean there there are some founders that the the benefit from taking a step back or or dissociating from the company that they may have started right it's it's part of life, uh, you know, uh, let, let the bird free, watch it fly, that sort of thing. And uh, I'll tell you, it's it's really awkward <laughs> de- delivering those letters, that's, that's for sure. Letters? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know. Uh, oh, okay. Pink slip there, you know, you yeah. start you're out. Wow. Uh, it's, yeah, it's not easy. And so what what other kind of problems then do you, do you see often with your portfolio company? What's the most common problem that you see that early stage companies experience is it the pink slip time when the founders are just well, not right you know it, it's tricky it's it's sometimes it's 
it's, a, it's keeping your investors at the managing their expectations the right way. So you'll have some founders that have really uh, lofty goals, and that's good to have. I say it's great to to think that you can reach for the stars, you know, whatever. But don't go to your board with this is what we're going to do next year. And then tell them like, oh, no, if we don't get there, at least we land on the clouds, right? It's like, no, go to your board with a good plan for what you're actually going to get done and then beat that. <laughs> Managing expectations. But, uh, you know, you'll meet some guys that don't have that, that, that sense. They don't understand how to, how to work with people or how to manage expectations exactly like that. And, and, and just honestly, sometimes it's easy as just go get sales, man, like. Stop worrying about the font color on your board deck and just go get sales. Add a zero to the end of your revenue number and nobody's going to care about anything else on the end of this. You know, like, go get sales. And that's not always the most important thing, but I'll tell you what, if you're out there getting sales and, and that sales number is increasing steadily and exponentially, no one's complaining about anything else. That's, yeah. Do, do Have you had... Any companies where their sales are great, but they just can't hit a profit? So with venture, that's going to happen because they're they're burning in order they're burning cash. That's why they're getting our dollars in order to grow. I just want to know that at least the unit economics exist in a way that they can reach profitability. Yes, there are companies where you start to doubt whether it's possible because you know something about the engine for how they generate revenue requires more spending than they make this is this is a problem um in some SaaS companies you start to think all right well maybe it's it's scale up sales for a while until it gets to a large enough size that if we cut back on operations they'll start to make a profit and hopefully the business can continue to grow steadily right I don't like that. I don't like looking at a business that way. I think I'd rather they continue to grow their top line faster than they grow their expensive line. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, no. I and I, I was talking to um, one of my past podcast guests uh, who ran a bookkeeping business. He's who still runs a bookkeeping business for small companies, and mm-hmm. he was talking about. Um, I think that's like episode twenty six, and he he talks about how he'll have clients who just don't get unit economics, just. Yeah, no, see this. Yeah, like it's just they're just not making a gross profit. It's just it's this just, is a problem, man. This is why, yeah, thinking. So what I was trying to say a second was basically just the marginal dollar in needs to be higher than the marginal dollar out, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. And maybe it comes from having an accounting and finance background to just know that, like, yeah, no, this is basic uh, common sense here. But uh, you know, I don't know. You see it with like uh, these companies, like uh, food delivery companies, and. Some of these rideshare companies and things like that, it's like, you know, the acquire a customer costs a hundred hundred dollars, and then you hope uh, he's going to stay on our platform long enough that it'll it'll come back, right? It's like, get out of here! You know, you're making uh, two bucks on every transaction because you're a marketplace. Like the money isn't really coming to you. You're not even making two bucks on every transaction. But like, let's say you were right on your two bucks. I mean, they make back your hundred. The guy's going to have to be using your your. It's, it's, do you really have the the usage and engagement stats to to say to support that? And then the issue is that 
a user will churn. So how much is it going to cost you to keep that user on the platform? So you start factoring the, the cost of engagement. Now, all of a sudden, your $100 to acquire a user is an additional $20 a month to keep them on the platform. So not only do they have to use your your product 10 times to meet the, the cost of keeping them on the platform, they need to use it more than that to now cut down the cost that you initially spent to get them on there the first time. I, I don't know. Um, made up a crazy hypothetical there, but this no. exists. This yeah. is happening. No, People are spending tons of money on failed business models. Like from day one, you can look at that Excel model and tell them what you've presented me here is is is, is just a sunken ship. It's it's, it's not garbage. making any money ever. Right? What do you want me to fund this for? <laughs> like, oh, there's another funny article about this too. But like. The VC industry is, is funding like free rides and free meals and free all these things. And it's like you can literally live off of all these like coupon codes in certain cities, right? It's like, wow, are our, our, our LPs or investors going to smarten up and say, hey, we don't want you investing in these types of companies? This kind of comes back to what I was saying as, as being stewards of capital and, and being able to allocate resources in an economy or just in the world. You can you can sort of bring light to certain issues or or, or change the focus of, of what we as a society are thinking about by allocating capital to certain things and spending more money on food delivery and uh, ride sharing, I don't think is, is moving the needle in any meaningful way. Um, you know, you'll see like socks startups and jeans startups and you go like, what was wrong with socks and jeans? Right? Like, did we really need another $100 million into socks and jeans? Hey, man, I need my jeans to you know, accentuate my figure. You know, oh. it, isn't that what it's about? Yeah, I think I... You know? Yeah, I, dude. I, I saw a sports apparel company be a public company. I was amazed. I'm, You know, obviously it's Nike. But I was I was like, this is just some run-of-the-mill sports apparel company that's just making stuff look nice. And Right. Man. You know, like, and I'm all for innovation. I think, you know, there's ways that... Fine, maybe you know socks and jeans. They find a way to sew them together. Oh my gosh, you see blockchain yourself. and <laughs> there there's go. a bit of AI. <laughs> yeah, the crypto jeans here, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the worst. But uh, do you have that? Do you have companies use those uh, filler names? Oh, uh, the number of buzzwords you see. Yeah. I wish I like if, if I had a nickel for every buzzword I saw right now. <laughs> no, it's it, it is actually really funny when you see decks come in with with buzzwords all over them but i mean i'm sure we're guilty of it too we probably on our fundraising decks have uh, a bunch of buzzwords in certain places because i mean somewhere along the line somebody likes to see those things or they're attracted to those words or even when you're trying to set a thesis for what you're looking for you might end up including some of these buzzwords in that because how else do you describe a certain thing right oh yeah dude i um, like I've spoken to close to like a hundred startups now and right. some founders I speak to, they'll say, oh, I, I, we added AI. There is no AI, but that's the only way to get funding. It's the only way to get someone's attention yeah. is to throw AI into yeah. the title. Nobody cares about our industry. So it's, it's, if it's not crypto blockchain, AI, we, we got to use it to get funding. And yeah, like they, they are very happy to admit that, um, to someone like me who's not an investor, but, um, yeah, like even us as investors, when we're trying to run an event or we're trying to do something to, to get people's attention and ask them to come, you know, listen to our story, we're using those buzzwords. We're saying AI, we're saying all this stuff. When we're even when we're trying to promote our portfolio companies, we're using those words because we know that it gets attention. And 
Are we guilty of falling into that trap? I'd say no, because we're well aware of it. But um, I'm might be wrong when I say that. I, I love that uh, humility <laughs> coming up at the back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, on, good on you. Um, do, do you personally believe that you as a VC are adding value to a company? I do. Yeah. I, I personally believe that we do add value. We're not just in there diluting their cap table for some money and then changing their, their goals and making them focus on the wrong things. Um, I think as venture capitalists, we have a, a long-term vision in any investment we make i mean the funds are 10 years old or 10 10 years length right and so when we make an investment we're not looking for a quarterly updates and quarterly return we do get updates quarterly but we're not looking like uh like public companies trying to see oh you know how'd you do quarter over quarter or year over year same quarter right we're saying okay are you are you on track to meet your milestones and your goals what can we do to help you get there and what like as investors, the reason we ask for these numbers is is to also help them stay on track. When we help them set their goals at the beginning of the year, they're not all sales targets. I mean, I know I said sales is the most important thing, but a lot of the time it, it's 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 even some things. Uh, we got an interesting email today from uh, CBCA, and uh, the title of the email was here. Let me pull this up. Was forget about the health of your portfolios for a minute. And uh, as investors, we continually check on the health of our portfolio companies. But when was the last time we checked on the health of our entrepreneurs? And more specifically, the mental health of our entrepreneurs. And, you know, one thing I really like about our fund and the team I work with is this is something that we actually do. This is something that we actually notice. Being an entrepreneur is not easy. It's extremely mentally stressful and stressful on your family. It's stressful on your your pocketbook your wealth it's 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 hard in in the most number of ways and that's why i'm so proud to work with like the most passionate people you'll ever meet literally i get to do a job where you're making dreams come true in some ways right and when i saw this 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 email this morning i was like yeah you know what this is very important it's it's not just checking on the health of the portfolio companies in terms of revenue and hiring and expenses you know it's, it's also checking on the health of your founders and, and your team and making sure that everybody is, is, is doing well and that they're okay because that's that's how you know that you're eventually going to get the type of returns you need to get. Um, so, yes, I think we do add value. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think, although obviously I think venture, I would like to believe that VCs aren't VCs if they don't think they don't add value. Like I, ho- I hope they are VCs because they do believe that. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think it's been funny because I sometimes when I talk to certain uh, startups, they'll openly say, um, oh, yeah, I think the best VC is a VC that just leaves me alone. <laughs> some some agree with that, some don't. But, like, yeah, I think there's that, definitely like both sides for sure. There are great companies that deserve to be left alone. <laughs> I'll give you that. You know, if a company is doing an amazing job and they have the team and all the resources in place to – you know, they don't need to get bugged and they don't need to bug us. And that, that's great. You know, like, I'm, I'm all for it. We love those companies, too, because, you know what, there's a lot of companies in the portfolio and some of them need more help than others. So if, you, if you're if you off to the races, please do that. Um, we also don't mind companies that come to us and say, hey, this is what we need help with. And they ask for it. The hardest companies are the ones that think they don't need any help, but really do. 
And so it's a constant struggle of trying to provide the support that they need, but not getting feedback, not getting, you know, questions. Instead, there's always just answers. And it's like, oh, well. Do you feel that that's mostly the case? No, to be honest, no. I, I think we've done a good job of picking the right portfolio or, or you know, picking the right teams that the, the founders that we work with, we, we knew we could work well with. Mm. Um, there might be a lot of companies out there and just maybe it's just as, you know, if you're willing to take the risk of entrepreneurship, you're likely incredibly smart and very driven and you don't want to listen to what somebody has to say. You were not trying to be controlled or parented in some way, but I wouldn't say a VC is a is trying to control or parent you. A VC is just trying to help. Is just trying to be a part of the process. Is you know is, is we're partners. And so, something I, I, I was like, uh, very curious about is um, Chamath. Um, mm-hmm. I can't pronounce his last name. Palia Patia. Oh, good one. Um, so Chamath <laughs> from Social <laughs> Capital. Um, was very vocal in like I, I love I love the guy like I love listening to his pod, like podcast interviews and I eat up all the stuff right. and um, he was very vocal in saying how the VC industry in like at least from I think his perspective the US it's akin to like a Ponzi scheme where you practically have this seed stage guys get right. a certain valuation and then they get their friends in A to prop it up and then they get their friends in B to prop it up and then C to prop it up and then, I don't know, I guess a vision fund comes in and, <laughs> and then exactly. acts as the IPO machine um, and they, on the back of that, they'll use that to, you know, say, oh, look at my unrealized gains and the first two funds are fund one and then let me raise fund two off of these unrealized paper gains and get right. fund two going and just churn that 2% management fee. Um, do you see that in Canada? We don't have that in Canada yet, but yeah. I see that potential, you know, the, the energy is there for it. Like this is definitely what every asset manager is trying to do, right? Is, is, but this is, sorry, I should clarify. This is not what we're trying. We're trying to build great businesses. And as a result of building great businesses, show great gains and returns and raise the next fund and raise the next fund. And, and have a, a nice massive pile of, of management fees coming in. But um, yeah, to say that, you know, we're actively driving a Ponzi scheme where we know a company isn't worth the valuation that we're getting them on their next round is never the case for us. Because especially in venture, you know that your next round of financing likely isn't the last. So if you're going to raise a round at, you know, call it X whatever valuation, you know that you at least need to have enough room or you need to see enough growth in the next 18 to 24 months after that, that they'll be able to raise money at another valuation in those 24 months. So you'd be shooting yourself in the foot if you went and just tried to get the highest possible valuation on the company at your next round because you're going to do some fundraising next week and you want to show some unrealized gains, right? Because you've just significantly increased the likelihood that in an additional two years, you're not going to be able to raise any money and you're going to take a down round. So why do that to yourself? When instead you can grow the company at its natural pace, you can set the valuation that it deserves. And to be honest, like what we say as investors is we would rather continue to invest our money flat because we know there's a ton of unrealized gain in the company. We know that we're building an amazing asset. So if we can invest more dollars at our initial valuation, go for it. I'd love to. 
Um, the founders will probably say, no, we don't want to get diluted at the same price. Like, this is why we want higher valuations is because we want less dilution. Okay, but then you're going to raise less money because once you get to higher valuations, you're also raising more money because the next investor still wants 15% of the company. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, I don't think that we're a Ponzi scheme here in Canada, and I don't think in general VCs are trying, actively trying to propagate this, this, this I don't know, this, this shell game of, of, you know, just investing more and more in companies and giving them higher and higher valuations so that your fund can show higher and higher returns so that you can go raise more and more money. But the process seems to work. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, it it definitely seems like it, and yeah. I think yeah, that's why we can make a case for it. And do you, do you, do you, so do you feel that there's kind of a an inner circle of kind of VC investors? So I I ask that because when I speak to spoke with certain VC investors about like syndicates right. and who gets on certain syndicates and stuff, it seemed that you know they would mention about how yeah sometimes we'll go on a syndicate without doing that much due diligence because we trust this friend of ours who's going to be leading it and cool. we we want to be part of that and or we'll you know you scratch my back i scratch yours i'll lead this one you lead the next one that kind of thing oh that definitely happens yes there is a bit of a it's not a boys club necessarily because there are women in the vc industry in canada but there's this there's, yeah there's, there's, a is, there's a club there's a there's insiders and not insiders but you know what i mean there's a literally that you scratch my back i scratch yours it's it's, it's it happens and uh I don't know if that's for the benefit or the detriment of our industry in general. I'd like to say it happens because everyone in the industry knows each other pretty well. And uh, if somebody has a certain expertise or somebody knows someone who has certain expertise, then they know that they can trust their opinion. And if the diligence has already be, been done, why rework unnecessarily? And we can share notes with each other and we go into syndicates together. And that's a good thing overall for the industry. Uh, could it be the case ever that somebody is, you know, part of the same whatever community group or friend group or some other type of group where they say, hey, come on, just do this deal with me. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll do this other deal with you. I didn't say yes. Right? I'll, 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 I'll say I believe it, it's definitely possible. Um, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it'd be naive not. YouTube, and YouTube, it YouTube happens. Being, yeah, no, you're and not it to definitely yeah. happens. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, um, I think Charlie Munger says it best when he goes, um, "You shouldn't blame the bankers for the financial crisis because it's like bl blaming a wolf for being a wolf. They're naturally, like, right. they're supposed to be that." You should, exactly. Yeah, you should blame the regulators and the accountants for failing to I do mean, their job. The one thing I would say I like about when we get to do deals like that is. You know, most of the time, if you're doing a deal with your friend, it's actually just a great opportunity that you would have otherwise not gotten a chance to be a part of that, you know, they just kind of like slid to you under the table that now you get to join in on. And that's awesome. You know, that's a great deal to be a part of. It's less often a failing company that your friend is asking you to prop up for no reason at all. Right. Like, so you know that's yeah yeah we'll leave, we'll leave it we'll leave it, we'll at leave that. it at that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um oh boy <laughs> yeah and uh as kind of like as we hit kind of the final stride of okay. our uh, interview i wanted to ask um a few kind of closing questions sure one is what do you think is the unsexiest part of the job oh 
because everyone, you know, well, not everyone, but I think the public perception <laughs> is that VC is a pretty sexy thing to do and be in. Like, I, mm-hmm. I've been in the buy side. It, it, I yeah. think it holds weight when you have that title it, as an investor. Yeah, so, there's the sexy parts to the job doing oh, those totally. things. Uh, we ultimately still report to someone. So that's the unsexiest part of the job for sure is uh, I'm going to go back in and do some compliance reporting or some, you know, audit reporting and, you know, getting stuff prepared and sending it over to our investors or legal teams and accountants and whoever else is asking for stuff. You know, that's part of any job. There's still work to do or sitting there, you know, reading 100 page documents, looking for typos, right? like they're, they're looking for mistakes. It's like, oh, yeah, that's not fun. That's not sexy. What is fun and sexy is, is getting to walk around and, and invest in stuff. So meeting companies and meeting cool things to go put money into or finding new investors to give us their money to go invest is a ton of fun. Don't get me wrong. There's and that's what I said was about two thirds of the job, right? Is, is, is all that really fun stuff. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the accounting, finance, compliance, regulatory, you know, all the work work is, is not all fun. the operations to yeah. keep the lights on. Yeah. And you know what? I think that's why some like bigger, bigger funds go, you know what? Let's, let's just hire an operations team and get those guys in here working on that stuff because, then we can focus on the fun stuff and only do the fun stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of good reasons not to pay a team of people a bunch of money to work on that full time. It's like I said earlier, just as stewards of capital. Here we are. We get a certain management fee. We'd rather, rather be as lean with it as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, we'll get to share in the, in the, the mutual benefit of, of having an extra pool of cash left over at the end of the year, right? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah. And, and um, do you have a Patagucci vest? <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we, yes. <laughs> I, I hate to admit, yes. We, uh, we, we as a team went out and, and got it. They, they don't do the uh, embroidery at the store in Canada, so you have to go get it embroidered uh, externally, whatever. But that's that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, in, oh, in the U.S. is great. You can get them to oh. embroider and send it to you right there with your logo. Oh man, <laughs> it's uh, just funny he brought that up. It was like a, it was like a, we had a whole Slack channel on this. Oh like, was, god, yeah, like, it's, like, it's a big deal. You man, know? It's, it's it's insane. Like I, I was a pa- <laughs> like I've been a big fan of Patagonia for a very long time. Yeah, and I want to say before before it went off. Yeah, yeah, before all these kids in dress shirts came in for it, and I'm like, I remember I was in the store checking out the new bags and. A bunch of what I assume to be bankers came in and they're like, yo, bro, let's, let's, let's try some vests. And they just don't fit into the store at all. And yeah. like, I just find it so like, it's like an oxymoron. Like right. if they even heard like Yvonne Chouinard just talk about the company and what it believes in, it just should not be part of the finance industry in any way. Yeah, it's the best. These banker bros who have not even considered going on a hike. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, like yeah. they're so pale. They're, they've probably never been outside. It's just like. <laughs> They don't have time to go yeah, outside. Like, bro, yeah, what are exactly. you doing here? And oh man, I was I was actually writing an essay about this when I was talking to my friend. Yeah. Um, he, he's at Facebook in um, the Valley, and he's like, "Oh yeah, Patagucci, dude, that's totally a thing." And I was like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> no, it's totally a thing." Yeah. Right? But I'd like to say, as VCs, we're not working day and night, so we actually take time to go on hikes and explore <laughs> the the nature oh, outside. Man, I, thought, you know? I thought it was crazy when I started seeing lawyers with 
Patagonia stuff on the, and with their branded lawyer stuff. And well, yeah, that's the, that's the funny thing is once you get it branded with your company oh, logo, dude. so you know you're a douche. Yeah, it's like, dude. yep, guilty. Yeah, guilty oh, is charged. <laughs> Accounting firms are doing it now too? No. Yeah. Oh, it's not going to be cool anymore. Oh, dude, Deloitte Vancouver did it. Oh, man, they had, a, they had an Instagram photo. It was insane. Oh, so it's officially not cool anymore. No. Oh, man. <laughs> Oh, shoot. <laughs> oh man i love it i love it um I was, I was i was really hoping you were gonna say no but i think it was amazing that you said yes sorry i let you down <laughs> no um uh man i really appreciate the time um you, you've given to come on this podcast and share a bit of your experience with the industry um with the listeners as well as myself it's been a lot of fun thank, oh, thank you. you this was a lot of fun uh, thanks for having me and i hope i wasn't too candid and uh if anybody thinks i was talking about them no I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> Shifty eyes. <laughs> just, just blame it on me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, great. Thanks a lot for coming to the podcast. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.